Welcome to If You Only Knew, brought to you by the Diversity Movement, where Dr. Debbie Stroman talks race and diversity in sports with some of the most influential leaders at the intersection of athletics and racial equity. On today's episode, Dr. Debbie talks with her old friend and former pro basketball player, Gene Banks. In the late 70s and early 80s, Gene was one of the first black star basketball players to play at Duke University. Today, they're talking about what that experience was like for Gene and how current black student athletes are standing up for racial equality. Here's your host, UNC professor, entrepreneur, speaker, consultant, and advocate, Dr. Debbie Stroman. I want the checks, you keep the mate. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. Well, welcome to If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman. And boy, am I excited today. I've got my home guy from Philly, the ACC connection, and of course, us living here in this great state of North Carolina, the Gene Banks. Gene, thank you so much for joining me today. And there's just so much that we have to talk about, but I want to dial it back and go back to the beginning about where it all started, what brought you to sports. I know you didn't come out of the womb being uh, six foot, what are you, about 10, six, nine, six, ten? No, I'm really about six. Well, I was six, six in high school. I got six, seven at Duke. When I went into the pros, I got six, eight. And I'll tell you how that works. When you go into the pros, you get that one that one day you go into the physical, and when they jot that down, that first day as a rookie, that's going to be your size. I step up on my tippy toes a little bit, so I got the six eight in there, because you so that's that's how. But I'm really originally six seven. You just played so big, I guess, because your physicality, that type of ball player, and I'm just jumping so fast. Everybody oh, knows. We're going, we're going to flow basketball it's, it's, star, everything, businessman. I'm jumping right to the basketball bit. So tell us more about that Duke experience, playing big, going to the pros. I guess you just did your thing as a strong forward way back when. That's what we called it. And then a shooting forward. And I guess you were multi-purpose. Yeah, it was really interesting how I molded. I mean, it goes back to high school a little bit. Played on a team, Westfield High School, star-studded. We were the national champions in 1977 by every national news media. Even Joe Namath had a publication of sports. And we want to cover that. That really got us going. 30-0, we played five games against out-of-state. Played Dumbard, who, who was number three in the country. We played a team in Washington. Played Brashear, who was the top team in Pennsylvania. And at that time, even though we were the national champions, we weren't in the, weren't in the PIAA. That's the, the association. Yeah. It was really a crazy thing. I went on from that. I played an all-around kind of a game. And when I got to Duke, I went with that team. And how I got to Duke was really a strange fluke. That was from somewhere else. It's long story short. I would have went to University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. The problem was University of Pennsylvania, the Ivy League, still had the rule where freshmen could not play varsity basketball. I would have went to UCLA. I saw Mayor Tom Bradley, who was the first African-American mayor out there. Marcus Johnson was my, he was my host taking me around. I went to the Johnny Carson show. I went to the Playboy Bunny Mansion, Hugh Hefner. And I might want to say that real quick. Duke came out of nowhere. I visited my English teacher, Mr. William, Dr. William H. Detweiler. Didn't care about sports, but he always kept saying when he saw this book that they gave me, not of the team of the campus <laughs> so he, was, he, he loved the gothic he was doing some professor work at university of penn as well he says you got to go visit and i kept saying ah to get him off my back 
I had to pick six schools. Duke, I had one more left to choose. And I just said, you know what? I'll go visit just to get him, really get him off my back. Mm-hmm. And that's how I wound up visiting Duke. When I visited Duke, I saw uh, it was a very quaint, beautiful. Uh, but what was influential about it was that there was a group of Blacks at Duke University. And they seemed to get along very well. Most people think that there were Blacks that come from affluent families, which they were, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. And I saw how they all congregated and were together. Dean Borns, who was the Dean of Minority Affairs, was instrumental. Dr. Caroline Lattimore, who's AKA Sorar General, and then Mike Bennett, one of the top lawyers in DC. We have such similar stories coming out of Philadelphia as well. I know when I go all around the country, I have to say, I'm from outside of Philly. But you know, when I go back home and I tell people I'm from Wayne, people are like, you're not from Philly. But anyway, I'm going to claim my Philly, my Philly roots. I'm glad you do, because I was wondering, were there black folks up in Wayne? (laughs) Don't go there. (laughs) But it's interesting how we both ended up in historically white schools. And then also, a lot of people don't know that Benjamin Banneker, uh, the architect of Duke, who did that all that Gothic architecture there, was an African-American. So uh, certainly, I know you had a great experience. But I want to ask you about your competitiveness because we see a lot of smack talking in sports today. So were you that super competitive athlete that talked the smack? Or were you like, I'm just getting a job done and I'm going to go back down court after I blocked your shot or after I hit a jumper over you or dunked? The latter, more so the latter. I never was really a talker. I was that guy that would go out and I would do everything that had to be done. As far as I was talented enough to be able to dribble the ball, I can grab, I can jump, grab the rebound. But I also had to know it out. I was more of a facilitator than just a score. I didn't really care to score much as long as we won, it was the main thing. And I got that from my dad. My dad was influential about basketball because when he took me out, my dad played against the Wilt Chamberlain's and all those guys in the playgrounds in yeah. Philadelphia. My dad wasn't, he didn't get to no level of, of professionalism. And he didn't take me out to teach me like an AAU coach would do. He did it because it was me and my dad hanging out he was playing ball. I was in the car acting like I was driving like a young man, you know, while he's playing. But I didn't really even care about basketball. But when he got done and everybody was off the court, he called me over and I go and he would throw the ball at me. He would trip me. He would give me a wedgie. So it became fun for me being with my dad, just playing ball. He wouldn't show me shoot like this or or do this. We were just playing like one-on-one, kitting, chitting, shooting, and all night. We just having a good time. And that made me have the love for basketball. Uh, and he started taking me out more and, and then he would put, I started growing, I started filling out and I was playing against a lot of the old heads as I was coming up and they taught me all kinds of tricks and tricks. And I knew I had to play in order for me to, to stay on the court. I had to play all out. I played very aggressive. I dove on the cement courts after mm-hmm. ball. They thought I was wow. crazy. Anything it took, it took to win and pass the ball off. And then if I got mad, I would go down and I would go and score. But if I scored to satisfy my taste, so I was that kind of player that liked to play hard, liked to play all out. I'm thankful that I was gifted to, do, to have many skills in it, to do a lot, of it, but more so I was very proud of my basketball IQ. All right, so let's do just a little bit of Philadelphia love. If I were to serve you up a plate of hot pretzel hot. with mustard or a plate of cheesesteaks with good... See, 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 you're not right. See, people are going to listen to this. And they don't understand the history behind Philadelphia. Philadelphia has that Philadelphia soft pretzel. It's different yes. nowhere else. And when it comes out hot, that's one thing. Now you got the cheesesteak, which is famous and well-renowned. And everybody keeps talking about 
Pats, and oh, Geno's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you can go in any neighborhood in Philadelphia, and those different places, they all make great cheesesteaks, and they're filling. They're crazy. So it's tough because I always get a bag. Let me tell you something. I don't get one or two pretzels. I get 24 hot pretzels when I go to Philadelphia. <laughs> Problem with that is, is the fact that when you're in a car and they're hot, you're eating them and you're eating them and you're eating them and you're, that's a lot of bread. Yes. That's a lot of bread. And then you got the cheesesteak, which when I get that, you got the, sometimes you get the whisk cheese on there. You get the right. and, and when you eat those things, you're full. That's why we got a lot of people up there kind of unhealthy a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> those cheese things. Exactly. One more Philly question. One more Philadelphia question. I'll so. take them both though. I'm taking them take both. both. Take them yes. both. Okay. What is your favorite and I know you played in the pros, but what is your favorite Philly sports moment, whether that's with the Sixers, whether it's with the Flyers, or whether it's with the Eagles, or even the Phillies? You from me, me watching? Me yes, watching? you're watching as an observer. Oh, I was lucky enough to be around the Philadelphia Eagles during the time. With Ron Jaworski, I was, working at a, I was working at a place called Nate Benz Reliable. They were teaching me to be a furniture salesman on my summer job. And Nate Ben's Reliable sold to all the sports teams, the Eagles, the Flyers, the, and they all came into the store. So you got to see these guys. So we got connected, uh, a friend of mine named Mel Parker. So I was able to go to some of the training camps, and I got to really watch this, mm -hmm. the Eagles go through that trump to the Super Bowls. I was very close to them. The Flyers were one that I was close with Bobby Clark and those guys back in that day because of the fact that I went to school at Second and Mifflin. I went to junior high school. And, second, and that's a predominantly Italian, Polish neighborhood, South Philly. They, all the kids down there played hockey. That was the thing. Philadelphia, South Philly, they played hockey. My best moment would be, I mean, the Sixers, too. I hung with Daryl Dawkins <laughs> and Dr. J. I guess the Eagles moment going to the Super Bowl was, was probably really, really special because I knew those guys, Wilbur Montgomery, Harold Carmichael, and, and to see them and cheer for them. You know, I saw Ron Jaworski his living room set. Wow. As a, you were truly a salesman. I know that. <laughs> well, I was just getting my bones. I got a lot of help, believe me. <laughs> right. Now, we're going to get to your professional life outside of basketball, but I want to talk a little bit more about people who've influenced you. My grandfather was my hero. I love my dad. My dad was great, but my grandfather was my hero, Clifford Clark. He was my hero. Mm. And that's how I got to number 20. Okay. Because he played in a Negro League in Mobile, Alabama. And he, he wasn't a great player or nothing like that, but he had the number 20. And I went down in the basement, I opened up a chest, and I, I used to love the number seven. But I opened up a chest, he had a, it was a grave, one of those gray flannel, flannel. flannel, but wool, uniform had 20 on it, and I changed my number in representation. So I wear the number 20 proudly because of my grandfather. Nobody even knows that. This is the first time that I've mentioned that. Right on the show, on if you show. only knew, with Dr. Debbie Stroman and Gene Banks. And so right now, we're all dealing with the pandemic. The corona is here. Not sure when it's going to leave us, yes. but we, we remain hopeful. But for someone who's played and certainly someone who's coached, we want to talk a little bit about your coaching as well and how you stay committed to women's sports as well. This situation, what do you say to players today? What do you say to college athletes? They may play, they may not play. You know, teams are canceling because of the testing. What do you say to keep young people encouraged during this time period? Right now, the situation for them is, is to look within themselves, spiritually, physically, and mentally. 
Now you got time where you can go out on your own and you can run the track and you can do exercise out in the field where it's all open. That doesn't stop you from that. So now you can really focus on uh, your body and also eating right because this thing can really get you in a lot of trouble because you're home and you're eating, you're getting frustrated. So for the athlete, this is a time for them now to watch a lot of videos of himself, about the players, get some reading in. It's, it's really, God is really telling all of us to step back check yourself out and remember i am god you know i yeah. am god all this other mess and too much this and that take some time and restructure see your family see, but more so check yourself and that's what these athletes need to do as far as the physicality of it of working out as much as they can they can take their weights out in their backyard there's a lot of things you can you know you make adjustments nothing you can do when it comes to the college basketball situation if they're going to play they're not going to play you just have to be ready uh, and to make sure that your game is ready. And then, like I say, there's a lot of video. There's a lot that you can see. There's a lot you can formulate. Now is the time for them to really get deep within themselves to really work on their game. And that's what's major key. Yeah, I think, thank you for that. There is no doubt that this age of having things fast, right? We call it the microwave era. It's incredible. Everybody expects things fast and you have the top technology. And I remember the day when couldn't go to a gym. There wasn't a gym. So we did calisthenics, <laughs> right? Push-ups, sit-ups, yep. running yep. sprints and things like that. And you don't need to have this high-tech equipment to get your body in shape. Your own body weight is a weight. Yep. And so a lot of people, a lot of young people don't know that you could actually develop a really nice body without even touching any equipment. That's right. Yeah. And that was, that was mine. I mean, everybody yeah. keeps saying I had an unbelievable body. I didn't lift weights in high school. It was a God-given body. And then when I got to the pros, I did a little bit from time to time. I really, they, everybody looks at my body and they kept saying, yeah, you look like at Adonis or whatever. What I did more for my body was when I did play, I played very, very hard. I went lights out to I didn't have anything left. So with that being, you know, you're stretching, you're diving, you're jumping, as you know, as a, as a sports person yourself, you, your body aches after it's all over with. Yeah. If you're really giving it all you got. And that's what's been for me with, with that situation. Well, thank you for that. And now we have social justice. Not mm. that it's brand new. It's been going on for centuries. But yes. receiving much more attention. And we've got the advancement of blacks in sports. And so let's talk a little bit about race and racism in sports. And first, I want to ask you, what was it like being at Duke? Not the first, but certainly we could call you in the pioneering class of being star black athlete at a historically white institution. Tell me about your experience. C.B. Claiborne was the first at Duke to be a varsity player. He was from Danville, Virginia. He's still alive too. I'm going to talk with him one day. When I went to Duke, it was more so, this was the era of modern basketball where I was the number one player. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm going down to Duke. I knew nothing about the South per se, so what I, what I saw on TV. I didn't have any fear. I didn't have any thinking. I went there almost on the guise of knowing that I'm going to on a mission, so to speak. I was getting a lot of attention. Okay? <laughs> yes. so, so I never went in there worried about the South or worried about the situations. I didn't know that Duke had some issues. Duke had, had a, a riot there, not a riot, but a, a protest about in, in 1969, if I correct, 69 or something like that. There was a race thing. And I learned that. And Duke had some issues down there, what they were doing that were not proper of not giving the, the full rights for blacks. And, you know, they have their biasness that they were bringing students in, as you well know, systematic racism. 
Um, but when I went down there, it was almost like I was brought there to bring a spirit. And I did. I'm not going to say I did, but God had his hands on it. You know, my first year going there and we started winning and the administration was getting close to the students and the students and the blacks were all connected. And it was cinderella -ish. And everything seemed to flow and everything seemed to go and do very well. So as far as the racism portion of it, the deeper part in the academic standard of it is, I didn't see a lot of that and didn't experience a lot of that where some other students that didn't have the accolades as, as an athlete as myself. And all that was happening and I maintained it until I almost flunked out of there. And my dean, who was a white woman, she cussed me out and told me, it took her to, to jump in my behind and tell me, listen, King Tinkerbell, you think you are the man, you're gifted, you got all these things, but I'm gonna have your ASS out of here because you're missing classes. You're doing, and I was smelling myself, you know, I was smelling yeah. myself missing classes, but it took this, this white lady, and I don't, and, and let me make this very clear. I don't look at white people as white people. Mm -hmm. I look at people as people. I've gone to China, less like you, you've traveled all over the world. When I traveled, there were different cultures, but they're people to me. Until they open up their mouths That's and they right. start talking, so now you're telling me who you really are. But to me, I don't like to call a white person a white person, a white man a white man. But when you start doing things and acting a certain way, you are in that classification of what that is. And when you are in that classification, that's not a good thing because we're really all human beings. I'm not giving this kumbaya speech. I'm just saying how I look at people. And when they come at me, and they, when they come off a certain way, now we got a problem because you know that's how racial, the system has been biased. So you shouldn't be like that. Wow, that's a lot. And I'm thinking about the protective factor, the insulation that we have as athletes. And so thinking about my experience at Virginia, yes, I did have some incidents, but mm -hmm. in general, when I talk to my black friends, mm -hmm. also graduates of Virginia, my experience is different from theirs. Yes. Because athletics pulled us away, gave us more attention, gave us, even though we weren't like they are today. I mean, they get everything today, right? <laughs> you yes, know, yes. you know, everything from equipment and apparel and food and all of that. But still, it is very, very special. We're very blessed to have the opportunity to play at major academic institutions. But you know, with you as well, you know, even though we were athletes, we had to do our schoolwork and we had to yes. do our basketball. If an issue of race came up, we did step out and we were going oh, to yeah. a protest. That's and right. Automatically was with that group, especially you and myself, we automatically say, oh yeah, we're not having this. So That's we stood right. up, we yeah. definitely stood up. In fact, that makes me think about what's happening today because athletes have that choice. Do you use your platform to your point to look at humanity? You know, that we are human beings. We're 99.98% alike. That's what the Human Genome Project said. Mm -hmm. And so some athletes are saying, absolutely. You know, they've been awakened with the George Floyd video and other things, other atrocities that are happening. They're making that decision. And for us, it's like, how can you not be out there? But then there are some athletes today say, oh, I'm still not sure. I'm a little <laughs> fearful, you know. So okay. another take on okay. today's athlete. And, we, and we're going to go there because you got to look at, compare LeBron James and Michael Jordan. LeBron James is an amazing player. Michael Jordan's a phenomenal player. LeBron's social activism is amazing. Yes. It's amazing. Where Michael Jordan, no disrespect, he's a, he's a teammate, would not touch those issues. David Falk and his, his group, the, the, the superpower attorney David Falk, whom I, I like a lot, they steered him away from not having anything to do with hurting his image. That hurt him as far as the black community, but people seem to 
when it becomes, a lot of people don't look at Michael Jordan as a black athlete. They look at him as Michael Jordan. That's a thing when it comes to that thing that's out there that people don't realize. They don't look at Oprah as Oprah. They look at Oprah as Oprah. You know, it's like you're that main person. But you got to realize that we come from the humble, Oprah come from the humble beginnings. Michael come from the humble beginnings. And then some people just will not tackle because it's a lot to tackle because it hurts your brand and your image because you've crossed over getting millions and millions of dollars. And if you do that, even though it's systematically racist, you're going to lose a lot of million because there's some some, some folks, you know, I hate to say this, some white folks are going to step away and say, nah, I don't think we're, we, we, we're going to go another direction. You know, <laughs> this is, uh, we love how what you're saying and we believe and I understand it, but Michael, uh, uh, I think we're going to go somewhere over here. No problem. No problem. So they'll do that easily, slide you over to the side. So they, a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to touch that, but it's just been happening over and over and constantly and so forth that this has should have been touched on not just 50 it should have been 100 years ago but at least 50 years ago having discussions about race in the colleges uh, in the high schools all this stuff these are discussions town hall we could have finally fixed this thing a long time ago but as you all know the powers that be they like to continue to have chaos they like to keep it a certain way because it goes back to all kind of strategies and tactics when it came to willie lynch it comes to you know separate you know white folks to understand is black folks got issues with black folks. That's right, absolutely. We're human beings. We're human beings. We have our own issues that we deal with in our own communities. We have to white folks to understand. We have our issues where light skinned black dark skinned didn't like light skinned ones. Right. We had all kind of situations where the fathers were hitting and gone, and then you had the situation where it came to welfare and all that stuff. We had our own issues besides the system itself. And that's why I tell white folks, I said, y'all don't realize that it's a lot that we deal with on our own inner circle. Because even though slavery we was separated this way, separated that way, we had somebody telling on this and telling on that. You know, we had all those things about trust, about trust. Now you got this other stuff thrown on you and now boom, you know, besides that, it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And it's the plan that has been, that's made America like it is. Well, Gene Banks on race and racism, but I'll tell you, remember, he's from Philadelphia, and this is what we do. We speak yes. very direct. We yes. just bring it. You can agree or disagree, and that's why I love Philadelphians. Oh, my God. I mean, Thinking about this race and racism right now, and I love what you stated because as human beings, we're trying to navigate this country. We're trying to figure things out. We're trying to have a nice life. Mm -hmm. And then when we have systemic racism on top of that, and so some of us are able to use our privilege, right? Mm -hmm. Our college pedigree, the networks that we have to enter into systems, whether that's corporate America, whether it's to live in a gated neighborhood, to be mm -hmm. able to have the best specialist healthcare providers, we mm -hmm. get access in, but then the experience is not good. We're treated differently. Mm -hmm. And so it's just one layer after another, one layer after another. And when we think about sports and looking at who's on the field and who's on the court, especially when you look at starters, primarily black men, black women in the major sports. Then when you look at who's managing the team, who's coaching the team, mm -hmm. who's deciding which players come here or there, it's white people. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not here to say that white people are bad, but what we're saying is that we need to have a shift in power. We need to share resources. We need to consider that black men, black women can also coach. We can also manage. We can also be owners. 
that's why it's important that we have more people in the sports space, whether you're white, brown, or black, to well, be a part of this especially when you be a part have, of the movement. Yeah. yeah especially when you have uh, like football, basketball, there's, there's no reason why there shouldn't be at least five owners of a basketball team or, or, or two owners or three owners of a baseball team or then a football franchise. But it, it, it's what you call the good old boy system. And when you say yeah. the good old boy system, those are their boys. They grew up together. They work together, blah, 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 blah. But the thing is they, keep, they kept their network like it is and they wanted to keep their network like it is and not let anybody else in. Now, when you say good old boys, I hate to use that term because good old boys stems and slides a little bit over to prejudice, discrimination, and all those kind of things. That's their bias. The bias you're talking about. And they've done it. They know they're doing it. Before it was covertly done, and they just, oh, well, we're just trying to, you know, we want to keep this little fraternity going. We're good. We'll let some blacks in. So they kept it going and kept it going and maintained it now. You look at the whole concept when you see the athletes out there, they're almost like a commodity. They're like commodity, like horses and so forth. It's money. You got to remember, these guys making a lot of money. Yeah. But you got to remember, the owners are making twice more. And they can use those players. They are their property, so to speak. They can use, They can go to a bank or go somewhere else and get a loan off of that player's contract or that who that player is. So if it's a $1 million, $140 million contract, he can go to the bank. Just off the top, the bank will give them $140 million because that's their collateral. That's where the power comes in that. The players are making some money, make great money than before, but they don't have that power. But LeBron James and his group have put together a great business venture. Magic Johnson's been doing a great job with the things he's done. But the thing about the systemic racism is the fact that now it's so blatant and they don't really care. No. They're just coming out saying it. And I, like I said, I have white friends. You're going to have white viewers. And just, like I said, I'm, my heart has been raised to the concept of, of loving people, all people. But fact is fact. White men are who they are, what they are. Their white women had to fight for rights, for equal rights way back when. They couldn't smoke a cigarette. They couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff, they kept them in their place until they had to fight for their rights. So white men have a certain situation that they have that those of a power that they want to maintain and keep it like it is and keep it where it is and have that kind of power. It's all about power and greed. Uh, and then when it comes to us, you know, they, they, they use all kinds of different types of tactics and situations. Even if they make the law, they'll still bend back and still make another law. You know, like you just said, it's here's the law and we don't, we're going to bend back and we're going to make another law. And it's, that's like affirmative action, period. Why do we affirmative action become a law? Because there are, they're actually saying, we, you right. We were wrong of, of holding you back. We want to try to balance the field. We want to do this. So we're going to open up the door so you, some students can get into Harvard where they've been hiring them out of Harvard. Some guys can get this job over as, as this doctor's this building over there. All affirmative action saying, yes, we were wrong. We're sorry. Let's try to fix it a little bit, a little and bit. Who, and who benefits most by affirmative action today? Actually, white women. White women. And white so women. even though we have these laws and guidelines and principles, it's still, there's a way for whites to receive the advantage. Again, it's not about, you know, pointing individuals out, but what we're talking about is on a systemic level, as yes. in the collective, the collective. And people will say, well, look, we have President Obama, or look, we have Michael Jordan who owns the Hornets. That is only one person. That might be a hundred people. What about the millions of black people and their experience? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's the difference. So it's not about individuals, about systems. Yeah, and the system is unbelievable. Blacks have constantly been beat over the head and worked on it through about the system. And we constantly get it. Tennis. You got to remember tennis, they had their little prissy group and prissy groups and they kept it. And also Althea Gibson comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And, and she starts playing. They like, they didn't want her to come in the locker room and do all that. She had to go through all that to get through all that situation. Jackie Robinson with baseball. The Blacks had to have their own league down in the Negro League. And all of a sudden, somebody said, wait a minute, those they can play. They're <laughs> really good. If we want to win this pennant, you know, Branch Rickey said, we got to get we got to get some of those kids, but we got to do it a certain way. Basketball, the same thing with ba- every single sport. Boxing, the same way. Uh, when Jack Johnson finally got that thing, and, and Jack was a lot like, hey, I'm going to be me, but he had to go through all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's always, even though they let you in, we still going to have some rules here about this. We're going to have some rules here about that. And you have to take this crap or else you're opening the door for everybody else, the people to understand that Blacks are just not hostile. They're not animals. They're not this. So you have to walk a certain Jackie, Jackie Robinson had to eat a lot of crap. Yes. And not respond. The greatest thing you got to do is not respond back to it. And that's a hard, that's where when I talk to my white friends and I say to them, I said, that's a hard thing. How would you have to deal with that and deal with something like that? Would you have done that? I said, wow. Well, I'm glad that you are, you still have that fighting spirit. You're trying to help young people out. You're helping out your peers. You've got your own podcast, which I want you to talk about. The Bank Shot. (laughs) Yes, the Bank Shot. You are someone who says that we can all have a wonderful experience. We can all have a wonderful life if we just honor and respect one another. So thank you so much for your comments about diversity and race and racism. Now, I want to ask you this. If you didn't have anything to do with sports, if you had a magic wand, what profession or job outside of your current work would you have pursued? Acting. Ah, actor. I got a taste of it. Very blessed to, to get a call to, to go out for the Eddie movie with Whoopi Goldberg. And I wasn't going to go. Herb Woodward, my agent, who was my agent, called. I was in North Carolina and he said, you need to go down to Charlotte. They're casting for this movie. The part that John Sally got as an aging ball player was the one that he wanted me to go after. I wasn't going to go. I said, there's going to be thousands of people. This. I'm not going down there. He finally coaxed me to go. I went down there. It was thousands of people in the Marriott. When they finally called my name, it was a tripod with a small camera, and they gave you an index card, and you read this one sentence. I can't remember. I don't remember what it was. You read the sentence, you finished it, and he said, thank you. And that was it. I walked out. I'm looking at all these people standing in line, and I <laughs> left. So they called me back up next week, and they, I came back. Again, same thing. A lot of people called my name, finally called my name, go up, index card, read it, one sentence, and read again. And I, I left. Boom. I said, okay, whatever. It, it was experience. I got a call back the third time. And they wanted me to come back. And I was sitting in front of eight of them. They had me read two sentences this time. And I read the sentence, blah, 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 blah. They said, okay, and Steve Rash said, okay, thank you, Mr. Banks, blah, 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 blah. I got up. I stopped at the door. And I said to myself, I got to do so. I want to be in this movie. If I just be a janitor, be a part, I just want to be around this, you know? And then I think Whoopi came, Whoopi came, and she bumped into me. And she looked up at me. And I looked at her, and I was in all of her, and we, she just she just put her glasses down like Whoopi does, and kept on walking. I'm walking down the hallway, and this girl comes running. Oh, Mr. Banks, Mr. Banks, I said, what? Here's a packet for you. I says, what is this for? She says, I don't know. Everything's in there, blah, 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 blah. 
So I open up this note, just no name, and open up, and it has on there, you'll have a suite here at the Marriott. Come on Monday. This was, it was Saturday. Come on Monday. They give you a car to do a Mercedes car to get drive around in, and you have casting call that morning. I looked at that. I went into the bathroom and I broke down and I cried like a baby. I cried. Mm -hmm. I, I thank God. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I have a party and I've met great people. I've dated and done things all over the place. But my true concept is my love for God and Jesus Christ and the gifts that He's given me. He spanks me on my butt every now and then. I haven't done anything crazy, but the thing is, I was just so thankful that I got that part. And they made that part for me because, not so much for me, but when they originally had it, they just had the two coaches. But as you're in the NBA, you got to have like three or four other coaches. That's pretty much how I got that part. And it was the greatest experience I ever had. I mean, I did it for two months. Two months. I was supposed to get $50 and some food. <laughs> $50 and some food. I wound up making about 25000 Wow. Gene Banks, the legend on the basketball court, <laughs> is broken down and crying because he got a part in a movie. Yes. That's a great story. To be around it, I mean, I'm in pretty much almost every shot. Mm. You know, I'm with Whoopi. Whoopi was amazing. I would get out of her way, you know, because she had ultras when she walked through. And then one day she was in this, I'll make this real quick. One day she was in, a, in this room and they bring her a centipede game. Remember that game centipede? Yes. She has that flown into her. And she's in there playing. It was a downtime. And she said, Gene Banks, come in here. I walk in. She's playing this game. She says, what's the matter with you? I says, I didn't know what to say to her. I'm like, mm -mm. She says, you walk around just quiet. You don't say nothing to say. I says, ma'am, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm just new here. She says, we're all family here. We're all part of this. So, boy, you better get your, get your act and flow with this. And, and then she says, Take this game. I got to run over here because she was wearing a patch. She was trying to stop smoking. So she had to go get a patch. In. She said, don't mess my game up. I'm playing a game, and I smile because I said, she made me feel like family. She really yes. did. It was just a one-on-one -on -one with her and I. And I had a ball doing that movie. Oh, my gosh. Well, that is beautiful because, as you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and that's what she did for you. She, she so really we're going to wind down with Gene Banks. And the final question, of course, I know you have lots and lots of energy. You have a lot of things that you still are working on and accomplishing and touching lives. But when it's all over and you're sitting in your rocking chair watching your favorite team play, what do you want people to remember you for? I think Martin Luther King said it wise about his eulogy. He says, when I come to meet my last days, I don't want them to talk about all the awards and accolades that I made. I don't want them to talk about all the money that I had because I ain't going to have much. But when I want them to talk about me, I want them to say that Gene Banks Jr. gave his life serving others. That Gene Banks Jr. gave his love for all people in his community. Gene Banks Jr. loved to be able to give life back and be touched by others and him also touch others. So when it comes down to it, I want them to say he was a good man. He, he tried, he gave back what God asked him to give back to others, no matter what race, creed, or color. And that's what is, I want them to say that, yes, I gave my life to give life and to be touched and to touch others. And thank you, Gene Banks. You do that so very well, so lovingly. You listen to If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman. The greatest. I want the checks. You keep the mate. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. It's been exhausting carrying the weight. Been accused of stealing the refuse my feelings. That was Dr. Debbie Stroman with Gene Banks. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
If you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And hit the subscribe button too. That way, you'll be notified when next week's episode launches. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence and is brought to you by thediversitymovement.com. Intro and outro music for this episode is from Soteria, and you can find more of her music at IamSoteria.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on If You Only Knew with Dr. Debbie Stroman. Come, send me calling comma, the vultures I